Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend and Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachad Rosh Hashanah, daf Chav Gimel, page 23. Well, first of all, I just want to let everyone know we will be releasing CM information in the next couple of days. So Which please start crazy. thinking about it if you would like to share something. I know it's crazy, but it's one a month, as we told everybody. Um, so please let us know if there's anything that you want to start thinking about um, and uh, let us know. So that's my first plug for the CM. Um, the Gemara gets into a discussion about how they burn the actual torches themselves and what type of wood was used. And one of the things they mention is coral wood being used. And then the Gemara gets on this really kind of bizarre but interesting tangent. So they talk about the Tzi Adir, right? The Tzi Adir you will not be able to cross. This is a Pasuk from Yeshayahu, chapter 33, verse 21 which talks about that there's going to be a river that's going to come forth from the, the future Beit HaMikdash and the, the, the future Beit HaMikdash and a boat that a Tzvi Adir, right, won't be able to cross it. And so the question is, what's a Tzvi Adir? Amarav Zoburni Gedola. This is a great ship. And the idea is that it's the type of ship that was used to collect coral from the sea. Hechi Abdi. So then the Gemara explains, how was this done? How did they collect coral from the sea? They would bring 6,000 men to work for 12 months of the year. And some said it was 12,000 men for six months in a year. And they would load with sand until it sinks to the bottom of the sea. So again, I do not understand how this works. How did they breathe? They did not have scuba equipment. Um, I have unfortunately been blessed to have gone to the Great Barrier Reef, and you need to be underwater in order to see coral. The last time I checked, <laughs> so presumably what this is that they would basically Wait. yes, and I was I think that you can like I don't know the question really I guess is how deep did they need to go right, right. because but it seems that they sunk the see. ship. I mean that's what it says, but it says it it's, it seems that that they sunk the ship. That's what they would do here. Right. So that's and the part that's right. And then a diver goes down and ties flax ropes around the coral. Okay. Um, and then ties the other end, the other end of the rope to the boat. And then they take the sand and they cast it overboard. And then basically the boat would come up right? Because one end of the boat is tied to the coral. The coral will basically get like uprooted and would come with it. So again, I, how did the divers swim all the way down? How would the I mean, it must've been like people were trained to hold their breath. That's the only thing uh, I can think, I can think of that. And then the Gemara goes on to say that basically the coral is so pressured that it was exchanged for twice its weight in silver, right? Umakli bachach sharem bakaspa. And then it says that there were three ports where this would happen. Tarte Bay Roma, two were belonged to the Romans, Vachada de Bay Parse, and one belonged to the Persians. Deve Roma Maskin Chista, right? The in uh the the Romans they raise up the they raise up the coral. Um Deve Parse Maskin Marginata, that they would raise up pearls. Um, and the Persian ports were called royal, were called basically uh, royal ports. So 
total tangent on that I think so vividly described, like how do they actually harness coral? And I think always when you see things from the ancient, you know, from an ancient world and you're like, well, how do they get those materials? You know, if you were to see like a piece of coral, this is telling you how they did it. They had a whole system of how they actually uh, would get it. It doesn't totally make sense to me how that worked. Um, but I thought that was the first interesting, interesting thing that I, I, I found here on this staff. Um, the second is it's, it goes down to the next Mishnah where it talks about how they would weave the torches back and forth, right? Magola, and it says, you know, what's the meaning of the word gola there of diaspora? I'm a Rabbi Huda Zopum Pedita. So it's saying that it can't mean the whole diaspora, right? The rest of the world. So it means it went to Pumpedita in, in Babylonia. My kimidurata age, and what does it mean like a like a bonfire? So it means that people would basically individuals would go up to their roof and 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 they would wave an individual torch, and then the whole city would look like it was lit up with this huge bonfire, which if you really think about it, is kind like yes, we do things as Jews in the diaspora where we sort of, you know. We light a manure outside. But the idea that once a month, right, you know, everything would be lit up you, uh, is kind of amazing to think about. And then tolerated by, by the non, uh, by the non-Jewish neighbors. Um, and then they and then they quote a, uh, and then they quote a price here. Tanya Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar Omer. So they say torches were also lifted in Harim and Kayar and Geder. Right, and it's neighboring places. There are those who say that these places that Rabbi Shon basically mentions are located between the places mentioned. So they're not like additional places that go beyond that boundary, but there are other places there. Ikadamri and others who say, and other people say, because remember, the Mishnah mentions different places. Price of Rabbi Shimon ben Lazar, the torches were located on the side of Eretz Yisrael near Babel, and the other ones, the, the 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 ones in the Mishnah are one side of Eretz Yisrael, whereas the ones in the Brisa are two different lists. Each station of the torch lighting was eight par- was eight parsot. So how many parsot are there? So it's 32 altogether. So then the Gemara basically says, wait, isn't the distance, right, basically from Har Hazetim to Beit Batlin much greater than 32? So Abai says the direct routes have become black. So now people had to use like indirect routes, so really it is farther right. So this I also thought was interesting. I didn't understand. In- have some famous usually roads get better, get worse, right? Like things are made shorter, not longer. So I did not totally get this. And then they quote a pasuk basically to, to prove they have to bring pasuk because it is so strange. So this is a puzzle from Hosea chapter two, verse eight. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns, right? Rav Nachman bar Yitzchak Amar Mehacha, Nitu Votai. Eva. Rabbi Nachman Bar Yitzchak says it's derived from here from Pesach in Kohelet, chapter 3, verse 9. He made my paths crooked. So it means that part of being in exile is, is that the roots actually became longer. So 
I don't know. I just found this doc to have some like sort of random information uh, that seems very strange and, and, and uh, you know, but like interesting things to think about, like how their world actually works. I don't have a good answer, though, to this question about the roads, where the way is now longer, where it says that the direct routes were blocked. I don't really understand. Like, does that mean there was flooding? Does that mean that there were, I don't know, roadblocks by the government? Uh, Meaning I can think of reasons you would have to go around, you know, or for that matter, construction, right, that they're fixing the roads. So now for for that amount of time, you know, the journey is going to be that much longer. But like, I don't it doesn't tell us beyond Right. I agree with you, but but certainly an interesting detail. Okay, so now the rest of the DAF basically has these two Mishnayot, the first of which is uh, or how the process works for the witnesses to come. We're going back to the witnesses. And the second mission is really about the examination. So let's tackle them. There's a large courtyard in Jerusalem, and it was called Beit Yazik or Yazik. And the Gemara here talks about, is it Yazik, Yud, Ayin, Zayin, Kuf, or is it just Yud, Zayin, Kuf, and the different possible meaning, like the implications of having the different terms. I have the feeling this is, you know, one of the things we can attribute to oral oral law, right? You say Yazik, and then, well, is there an Ayin in there or not? And that's going to depend you know, if you're a Yemenite, maybe you hear the ayin, but if you're not, would it have been pronounced? So this is exactly the opening discussion of the Gemara, which we're going to leave aside. But it was called Beit Yazik Haitani All the witnesses would gather there, meaning whoever would come from wherever they came to testify about the sighting of the new moon, that's where they would go. And that's where they would be examined by the court to see, you know, did they know what they were talking about, really? And they would make a big feast for them there. And I feel like this is like, you know, get people to come to shul by having a really good kiddush, right? It's that it's that phenomenon of recognizing that people will be more likely to bother when they've seen the new moon to pick themselves up and get themselves to come to Jerusalem or to come, if you're in Jerusalem, to come to Beit Yazik at the right place at the right time. And they'll offer you a really good meal so the people will come and give to give their testimony. When they first would come, if they're, what does it mean that they wouldn't move the whole day? We're talking about Shabbat. If they came from, they arrived there on a Shabbat, and that's the mitzvah, right? They're allowed to travel to get there, even though it's Shabbat. So they wouldn't leave, right? They couldn't leave there all day long. And of course, if you think about it, that's kind of a deterrent. You want to go back to your home, for example, because once you've slept all that way, you know, it, it's kind of wonderful. They're going to give you this big meal, and then what? And then, and then you're stuck, right? So the concern is the concern was that then people might not have come. So then, eventually, Rabbi Gamliel, the elder, right, he decreed that they could walk two thousand amot in every direction, in any which direction, really not in all of them, right? The point being so that they could go to wherever they're going after, that they're not stuck because they could only go the original plan. You know, once they've got there, they've delivered their information. They're not supposed to leave more than Dalat Amot in any direction. So this decree was really a game changer in terms of, you know, enticing people to go. And I know that this is also true in modern Israel when you have doctors and nurses and other technicians on call on Shabbat not just on call, meaning who have shifts that begin on Shabbat. And so they have a whole system of bringing those people to the hospital. But then theoretically, you know, 
all that pikuach nefesh is done once they're done in the hospital and they should just stay there and wait till the end of Shabbos. And the answer is no, they get to go home to make sure that they're willing to come, right? It's this exact issue in a, in a different kind of way. I mean, it's also their jobs, but fine. The Mishnah continues, oh, a midwife who comes to help uh, birth a child, somebody who comes to help uh, like the fire fire staff, right? That they're coming to help rescue people from a fire. Uh, we got troops, right? If you're gonna, if you're concerned about non-Jewish troops coming and attacking the Jews, so also any of these things, you can walk your two thousand amot to get there to do the helping. Likewise, so to help people, you know, avoid or be rescued from a flood, from a, a river overflowing, or from a if a building has collapsed. Then what happens is that once they arrive there, they're now considered as if they were from of people from that same town. Meaning, in terms of the their tum shabbos, how far they can walk, they can take their two thousand um, amot in any which direction. And I say, Yardena, it is a good thing that we learned Erevin before we came to this because we already know what this is all about in terms of the two thousand um, amot in each direction, right? Meaning. We might have forgotten, but it was part of the, it's part of the background that the Gemara, you know, if I want to say that you, the Gemara always said, I always say that the Gemara presumes that you know everything and, you know, it's not this really is true. A great, you, this is a great example that of the Gemara presuming you know everything about everything. And this time we actually do, or kind of. That's okay, true. so that's, that's the Mishnah. No, but that's why, like, you know, always it's kind of a, is when it's a frustration where you know that you have to then go look up a whole new thing. And here there's so much information about those 2,000 amount, and we've at least been through it. Um, okay. The next Mishnah. Now, this is really, I think, the crux of it. The crux of it, meaning the accepting testimony about a new moon means that you have to, I don't know, there's a lot to know about to figure out whether the witnesses knew what they were talking about. Did they really see something? What if it was the wrong place in the sky? What if they're trying to mess things up the way the, you know, the sectarians were trying to do? So there's a there's a lot going on that the system of accepting um, of of being of sanctifying the new moon based on the testimony of those who have seen the moon, there requires a whole interrogation here. So how did they do that? How did they examine them? The first pair to come, those are the people they would check first. I mean, they would ask them first. They first would inquire of the greater of the two. They'd say to him, tell us how you saw the moon. Was it in front of the sun? Was it behind the sun? Did you see it in the north or the south? Meaning, which direction in the sky? Well, you know, which direction would you have to turn on Earth to see it in that location in the sky? How high was it in the sky? Which direction did it lean? Right, the the crescent. Which way is it tilting? How how wide was it? So the questions are really about the positioning of the moon, and then this last assessment, which is that somebody who says that he sees the moon in front of the sun. Right, is basically saying nothing. The the mission says that's nothing. Why? Because a, it's impossible. 
And so then the question is, did he, was he mistaken? Was he confused? Or is he actually lying? So you can't accept that comment to be meaningful at all. I mean, the, the Beitin did not accept it to be meaningful. And they, they would bring in the second of the first pair and examine that one, Ubukinoto. You know, does, and of course the question is, does what he says match what the other guy said? If they align, if the two, if they are grilled and discover that their their statements about the sighting that they claim to have seen, you know, the, together that they came together, then that is accepted. Their witnessing is going to be accepted. Then they'll do kiddush hakodesh. You don't need a whole lot of witnesses; just one pair. And then after you've gotten that, you've got one pair that is kosher. Maybe they've established the moon. They've established Rosh Chodesh based on the, that first pair. Then what they would do with everybody else would ask them like, you know, like simple questions, the outlines of the questions. Rosh Chodesh. They want to make sure that they're treated seriously. Because even though they're no longer necessary, because you only really need one set of witnesses, but all those other people who came, you want to make sure that they're willing to come. And the way you make sure that they're willing to come is to treat them with respect and to treat them as important and to ask some questions that makes it clear that you're treating the fact that they have testimony to give you know, as significant so that then the next month, let's say the first pair who shows up will be a different set of people, whatever you want. They were, it's clear that they were really making sure that the, Regular people out there living wherever they live were willingness were willing to come to Jerusalem to give testimony about the new moon. I think you know we'll give them a meal and we're going to treat them as we're going to treat them seriously even when we don't need them and we're going to make sure that they can go home that they, or at least that they can walk two thousand amot you know in whichever direction. There seems to have been great need for the incentives to get people to quote unquote do the right thing. And my guess is that it's because it's. It was probably not so easy, right? I Meaning you have to pick yourself up in whatever weather and get yourself to. They did not have uh, much comfort in their means of travel, especially on Shabbat, right? And um, I think that that. Rec- so some of this is specific to Shabbat, but some of it is not, right? The phenomenon of a meal and the phenomenon of, um, of treating them seriously is not about where they, what they could do on Shabbat. The enticement or the incentive and making sure that there's no deterrent seems to have been critical. I hope it's not because people weren't coming, right? I wonder about that. Was this something that they needed to convince people that it was a worthy effort? Uh, but certainly they want to make I sure. I think it probably was worth- a little of both. Like I could see like any mitzvah, I could see there are people probably got like so into it. I was thinking about this during the stop. <laughs> like, were there people who almost like tried to be experts in finding the moon? And they almost tried to go every month. And then there are probably people who are like, oh, my God, they won't leave their house like from day 28 to 30. They don't <laughs> want to be the one. That, that's my sort of experience. Like I'm sure I, you're right. Because human nature, right, like that's the same. I think it's like a personality thing. So in other words, I could think about it, who would be the people who would be like, this must be the most amazing thing to have the privilege to do. And then people who are like, uh, count me out. I don't really want to leave my house. Yep. And I bet you that in different weather, that also changed. You know, like if it was raining, if it was too hot or whatever, you know, again, people are people. But um, I think that the rec- I think that it's, it's interesting to me that there's no there's no harsh language here of like 
You know, this is a mitzvah, get thee to do it. You know, like it doesn't, it's not like that at all. It's really like a, let's make this as a, as wonderful of an experience as is possible. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.